Osteoarthritis is one of the most challenging and frustrating conditions general practitioners face in veterinary medicine. This week, we are delighted to bring you a specialist who's gonna tell us how you can do a better job with your patients and what's the latest in the diagnosis and treatments of osteoarthritis. This week on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Before we get started this week, I wanna remind all of our Viewfinder family how important it is to review and rate us on iTunes. We need you to go to iTunes this week and actually give us, we'll suggest five stars, but just a quick little sentence about if you enjoy the content or what we're doing here because we are trying to grow and reach as many of our veterinary colleagues as possible. So do us a favor and rate and review us this week. That's all we ask. That's right. We are really excited to bring this content to as many people as we can. We really appreciate all of your help in getting the word out, sharing with all of your friends. We love to see us popping up on your uh, Facebook and your Instagram feed when people ask what podcast you're listening to. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen and for elevating yourself in the profession and for giving us this opportunity to reach all of you for better patient care. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And if you've been in practice as long as I have, you know that a tough topic is osteoarthritis. In fact, most of the time we are diagnosing it far too late in my opinion. It's only when clinical signs are fulminant and the damage is irreversible. And this week we are delighted to bring you a special guest who's gonna tell us how we can do a better job. But before we get into all of that, as always, I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And today we have got Dr. Kristen Shaw, and she is a dear friend of mine and somebody I respect immensely because she's doing some cool stuff that we're going to talk about today, but she is a small animal surgeon. She's also a rehabilitation specialist, and she went to the University of Florida where she did her master's, her PhD, did her surgical residency. So this week, I want to bring to you an exciting program that she has developed. And before we get into that, thanks again, Kristen, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Ward and, and Becky. It's great to be here. Before we get into what you're doing that I think is so cool, uh, explain to us how you became a veterinary surgical specialist. Sure. So I think like many people, I always knew I wanted to be a veterinarian. So that was easy. And going into vet school. As a kid, single digits. As a kid. Yeah. I, I grew up in um, Panama in Central America and what? had all sorts of what? animals. So I had monkey and otter, sloth, owls, snakes. And uh, as <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. So I used to have a, a little um, sign I'd put up on the door. It said, you know, the Kirkby Zoo and kids would come by and, and see all of our animals. And so it was just sort of a natural that, you know, I'd I was always going to be that. And that was Wait, how, well, how are you in Panama? <laughs> My dad was a Panama Canal pilot. Whoa. He, yeah, he's retired now, but um, he's actually still in Panama today. Wow. Okay. You are now elevated to like one of the <laughs> coolest people on the planet. But what Becky wants to ask you is, did you have a pet bat? It's just all I want is a baby bat in my life. And our listeners know this. Uh, they're the cutest. They're little sky puppies. <laughs> I did not have a bat. Wow. Okay. So you're growing up in the jungle. I really have got this Swiss family Robinson image now that's, that's, you know, permanent. So you're growing up, you've got a wide variety of pets and this just naturally led you to say, I want to be, you know, an animal. Dog. Yeah. And, and I, I thought I was going to be a zoo vet, um, right. cause that was my background. Um, and then actually it was the 
the summer after my first year of vet school, I at that point I was looking into marine mammals and and did an amazing externship at the Marine Mammal Center in California. And it was amazing, but I recognized that what was missing was the human interaction and the getting to cuddle with your patients. And so at that point I was like, well, you know, I'm probably not going to do medicine or marine mammals. I still want to be a specialist. And, um, I fell in love with orthopedic surgery actually. And yeah, the, the rest is kind of history. I was very, very, very fortunate to, um, stay on. Well, I did an internship and then came back to the university of Florida as a surgical resident. And during my residency, I, it was sort of early days of canine rehab and I had had my own personal experiences with physical therapy where I, you know, first went to an orthopedic surgeon who told me I, he could do some drastic, you know, osteotomies on my, my bones to try and realign everything. If I thought I wanted to be a runner or otherwise I should just not run. And I was like, ah, that just doesn't seem right. So as a resident, I was like, you know, I think we can be able to, to offer more to our surgical patients or our orthopedic patients beyond just surgery. And that's kind of led me down the road of rehab. And then ultimately now just kind of combining the two of them and um, particularly osteoarthritis was just sort of the intersection between surgery and rehab. That's how I first became aware of the exciting things you're doing. You know, my dear friend, Dr. David Levine at mm -hmm. University of Tennessee, we, yeah. uh, of course, we wrote a book together last year. Um, but uh, David was just saying, wow, you know, do you know Dr. Kristen Shaw? And I was like, I kind of know the name, but I don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like, I think this is a great jumping off point to explain kind of what you're doing now, especially with this care program. Yeah. So I started a website um, called caninearthritis.org. It's canine spelled out. And it has been a sort of a dream and a passion project of mine for a number of years. The kind of the the background and the, and the impetus for it was twofold. One was to develop a trusted evidence-based resource that I could send my clients to, as well as every veterinarian out there could have a website beyond just the, the standard Dr. Google, where they, they feel like their clients are going to be reading information that they trust. And so part of the website is actually directed towards pet owners, dog owners. But the the side that I, I spend a lot more of my own time kind of working on and building is the veterinary professional side. And that developed out of, um, I'm so lucky and fortunate to get to, to speak to vets around the country, around the world now, a lot of times about OA. And many times, you know, I'll be doing one to three hour lecture and there's still only so much you can cover in that time. And I'll get emails from um, people that have attended. And inevitably, they're all very, very similar questions that just want more information. So I wanted to create, again, a site for veterinary professionals that can help them do do their, their job, pra practice at a higher level, particularly with OA. And within that, I, it's sort of divided into two parts. One is the diagnosis of OA, and then the other part is really comprehensive treatment plan. So, you know, from the, the diagnosis standpoint, I, I'm really fortunate. So in a specialty practice, I get an hour and a half to do a physical exam uh, or my, I would just say for my consultation of that, right. the physical exam is actually just a very, very small part of it. It's a lot of conversation with the client. And 
these conversations can be challenging. Um, you know, when we're talking about telling a, a client with a young puppy that their dog has hip dysplasia or elbow dysplasia and they're going to develop arthritis and this client had, you know, that was nowhere on their radar. Right, they, right. they have a young puppy or as you're very familiar with having the tough conversation about a dog being overweight, but it's so important to have that conversation. So I wanted to create tools that could help the veterinarian continue that conversation, if, especially if they don't have time and, and their, their first consultation can send the client to the website, read a little bit more, can send some resources to the client to, again, just read a bit more. In addition, there's also a lot of videos on how to do an orthopedic exam, how to do a one-minute orthopedic screening exam, some client questionnaires on just, you know, any signs that, that your dog may be in pain, just a, a ton of ton of resources on there. Um, the website is free um, for veterinarians and for pet owners. For vets, you are going to have to sign up with your email address, and that just kind of is the gateway to getting into the the veterinary professional side. And I should say it is, you know, veterinary veterinarians, technicians. We do have physical therapists. Um, but one thing that we just recently launched was the Care Pro membership. And this one is a paid, uh, paid subscription. And it, what that offers you is there's five hours of race approved webinars on there. In addition to some other webinars that aren't yet race approved. And then a lot of these, um, resources that I mentioned, there's videos, for example, how to teach a dog to do backwards walking, how to teach a dog to do a play bow. So these are exercises that I recommend and find really helpful for dogs with OA. Veterinarians, professional veterinary professionals can take the links to these videos and then send them to their clients. So lots of stuff. I really love, I love that part about it the most. That gets me really excited because sometimes I think when it comes to osteoarthritis, we, we can't see it, right? Um, and it, it becomes really hard to know what to do and how to do anything at home to make things better. And, you know, I, I mm -hmm. feel like a lot of times as a technician, I'm like, oh, well, you know, we can do sit, stand, sit, stand. We can do stairs. Um, oh, if you have access to water, that's great. But like, I know that sometimes as a support staff member, I don't always feel as though I have the tools to help create these opportunities. And one thing I really love about the things that you're mentioning as far as walking backwards, playing, bowing. And, and to Dr. Ernie's point is, I think these are things we can get in front of. And so like, these are things we should be working with and talking with our clients about well before there's an OA diagnosis, right? Absolutely. You know, I think, again, the key is, is making this diagnosis as early in the disease process as, as possible. And, you know, it may be a six month old golden retriever that has elbow dysplasia and they may not yet be clinical, but if we can catch it early and have all of these conversations early, we're going to change the, the course of this dog's life. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's a, an interesting thing because to that point, you know, I think about being <laughs> little and like cracking my knuckles, right? Or you crack your neck or you crack your back, and everyone says, you're going to give yourself arthritis. You're going to give yourself arthritis, right? So we know mm -hmm. what arthritis is. Like, like, I feel like all of the challenges, right, we're, so, we're so set up for success when we're talking about arthritis with our clients because they know what the disease is. They know that it's quote unquote preventable. Like, and I understand that that's a very simple way of putting it, right? I, I, it's not, you know, but we can do things to prevent it. We can do things to slow the progression. Like we get that so much on the human side that I think we have such a good opportunity to tie that into our patient care and, and get them on board early and fast. 
Well, you know, Kristen, uh, and you know, we've had many discussions outside of this podcast, of course, but I think that you and I share this frustration because I think that number one, if you're a veterinary professional listening today, you need to really keep up on what is happening in the advancements of diagnosis, recognition, treatment, and then measurement of outcomes, because it is not the same world as it was even 10 years ago. I think the second thing is this early recognition that we keep talking about. Obviously, you know, my fight has been with pet obesity, and that's why we called it the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention, because we know that once that disease is set in, ugh, it's difficult. Um, but let's get back to what you're trying to do as far as raising this early awareness, Kristen, because this is where we are missing the boat. And then number two, uh, so diagnosis. Number two, I still will argue and I will push my veterinary colleagues, we need to better understand the pathophysiology of osteoarthritis and how we can intervene medically and why anti-inflammatory treatment is so essential. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to start with the diagnosis, I think what is important to recognize it is in dogs, specifically dogs, Right. it's almost always secondary to an underlying condition, typically a developmental orthopedic disease. So hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia, OCD, even medial patella luxation. And then we've got cranial cruciate ligament rupture, joint, um, whether it, you know they're a fracture to the joint or really high impact activity to the joint. So we can predict these dogs. Absolutely. And this is what gets me, gets me a little incensed, as you know, I'm passionate about this, but here you are, you've got this little miniature poodle or whatever. It's a cute one or two year old patient mm -hmm. and you're feeling the wobbly knee mm -hmm. and you're just making fun. And, and honestly, Kristen, how do we get our veterinary colleagues to transcend the conversation from, well, if he starts limping or limping is normal to here's what we can do. Uh, yeah. It, I mean, it's tough. I think one is, um, just recognizing that limping is a sign of pain. So that's the body's reaction to saying, hey, something's wrong here. I'm going to protect myself. So I, I'm going to limp. I'm, I, 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 like, I'm not to interrupt mm -hmm. you. I just, why is that so hard for our clients to grasp? Like, I, I love that you bring that up because you're so right. Like, are we right. really talking with our clients about those early signs, those pains? Because I can tell you, I have worked, I have literally heard probably a hundred times from clients directly He's not, I don't think he's in any pain, but he's limping. He's not limping. Right. Exactly. Right, right. Oh, yeah. In yeah. the same, very same sentence. And, and I can't mm -hmm. under, I'm like, well, why do you limp? And I, and I know that they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Right now we have thousands of people downloading each episode, agreeing out loud with us saying like, why? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a slide in one of my presentations, which is a dog holding their limb up and say, you know, has, how many people today had a client say, my dog's limping, but yeah, I don't think he's in pain. So yeah. So how do, how do we get clients to recognize what pain is, is, you know, it, it's about a conversation. There's these client questionnaires out there. We have one available on canineArthritis.org. It's basically just yes or no questions, such as things like, does your dog lick excessively? Does your dog not get up to greet you when you come home? And then kind of going down, does your dog limp? And just kind of throwing that in there with all of these other signs that are often, you know, confused for 
you know, for example, limp or licking excessively, we always thought that was like a hotspot or a dermatologic issue, but that's actually can be a sign of, of trying to soothe an area that's painful. And then I think we have to elevate the conversation even further, especially from our side of the equation, the veterinary professional side, because we have to understand the consequences of the pain. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, again, I, I try to tell veterinarians, I don't see obesity, I see chronic inflammation, right? Mm-hmm. So what I think we have got to do a better job of connecting, and this is both with our own colleagues as well as the pet owning public, is, okay, look, guys, if they're licking excessively, if they're slow to rise, if they have limping, here's what's actually happening. Here's the consequence. And Kristen, a lot of times this is irreversible. By the time pain is apparent, it's too late. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think um, kind of two points to make. You you brought up the um, just kind of the question of the pathophysiology and you know, we're learning more and more about the pathophysiology of OA. And one of the things is that we know there are chemical and histologic changes that are happening much, much earlier in the joint before we're ever seeing radiographic changes, potentially before we're even seeing clinical signs. But we know that there's um, actually sort of an immune process going on. We've never considered OA to be an immune-mediated condition, but it's, it's really kind of you know, run by macrophages and macrophages in the synovium are releasing all of these destructive enzymes. So IL-1 and TNF-alpha and these, you know, matrix metalloproteases. And it's actually been shown that that these substances get released early. There's actually a higher concentration in the early in the disease process. Then we have destruction of cartilage. Then we have thickening of the joint capsule and these consequences that are irreversible. And with that, does come pain. And then to get into the the chronic pain scenario, I mean, chronic pain, OA is the most common cause of chronic pain in dogs. And chronic pain is a very leading cause of euthanasia in our patients. And so once we get into the maladaptive chronic pain states, hyperalgesia, allodynia, it is next to impossible to come back from that. And I know that unfortunately firsthand from my own dog. And so it's been my personal goal to not have anybody have to go through that with their patient or their own dog. Absolutely. And again, this is where I get frustrated because we as a profession, and I've said this countless times in lectures and on this podcast, we like to talk about treatments. Clients want to talk about prevention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like, it's great <laughs> that we have all of these amazing pain modulators. Like, mm-hmm. We can do things with pain today that I couldn't dream of 30 years ago when I became a veterinarian. And who cares? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's great, but it's too late. I mean, when we're having that conversation about, about multimodal pain management, Kristen, I'm like going, Oh man, you know, rewind the tape of that dog's Mm -hmm. life or cat's life. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, so, so viewfinders, I mean, I really want to hear from you on this as well. I mean, what are you doing to raise awareness as early as possible? I mean, you've heard us say for years, things like, you know, Hey, at six months of age, you need to have an osteoarthritis conversation with every lab, (laughs) but we're we're, we're not doing it. Yeah, exactly. So viewfinders, what are you doing about this? And are, are we off our rockers or is this something that we should be, you know, more, I, I think, forward with our clients about? My thing is, is just like you, you did the very typical thing of like, have that conversation with every lab puppy, right? right. And that's one of the biggest problems, isn't it? Yeah. What about our tiny little Jack Russells who get it anyway? What about our Bassets with crooked, crooked legs? I think we're not. And one of the things that I know, um, you know, BI is, is pushing on, on their side is 
really focusing on those ones that we're overlooking for their whole lifetime. So I feel like we are having that conversation with the labs and the shepherds and the ones that come in screaming OA. But I think we have a really underserved breed population in our smaller dogs that are just as susceptible, but are are really not only are we not thinking about it not being preventative, but probably ultimately not even diagnosing it because of their size or breed. I don't know. What do you think about that? Becky, I, I am 100%. And here's what I want to ask Dr. Kristen here. Okay, what about cats? <laughs> what about cats? So, yeah, you know, I think of all of the population that we see, I think cats are by far the most under-recognized. Um, they're just, they're trickier. Um, but, you know, there's been studies now that have gone back and looked at radiographs of, you know, doing a catagram or a thoracic or abdominal radiograph and finding, oh gosh, this cat has, you know, degenerative changes in their elbow or in their spine or in their, their hips. I think we have to be having the conversation with, with cat owners as well. Um, you know, and, and it comes back to, I think, you know, to your point of, of obesity, that is the most important thing that can change the course of an OA disease, whether it's a cat or a dog, just because of that chronic inflammation, more so honestly than the biomechanical factors of just having added weight. So whether it's a cat, whether it's a Labrador, whether it's a Jack Russell Terrier, that conversation with a client from honestly day one, first time they meet them about the importance of making sure they don't get overweight. Um, And, and actually I'm going to, I'm going to say that I recommend Labrador, German Shepherd, any dog that's at risk of hip dysplasia, I recommend looking for that at actually four months. So you can do an Ortolani exam at 16 weeks of age and start yeah. screening those dogs um, that that may be at risk. Yeah. And if you're a young veterinarian out there, I'm going to tell you right now, you need to learn how to do a proper Ortolani. It is not hard. I mean, I was shocked, Kristen, all the years, all the associates that came through our clinics, you know, that would, that was one of the first things I wanted to make sure they understood was how do we identify, you know, gait abnormalities and Ortolani and things like that. And I'm going to tell you where I got lucky, kind of like you, I grew up only wanting to be a vet and the most valuable thing I did was wash thousands of dogs yeah. as a as a young child <laughs> because because you got to feel and observe and now you know it's an it's an impulse it's like a squirrel you know I'm a lab because if I see a dog walking down the street and if there's any slight gait abnormality man my head is on a yeah. swivel you know and it's know. like whoops boom. it's kind of like a curse now though you can't just watch a dog <laughs> drop a shoulder look at that hip look at that yeah. knee you know it's like wow that form. Um, so I would encourage you young veterinarians to mm-hmm. to check out care for sure, because you need to be able to do an Ortolani, you know, mm-hmm. four, six months of age. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, that's I, and I agree the, the earlier you can do it, the better. Now, Kristen, real quick um, on a technical aspect, because they're going to be vets listening today and they're going to be like, whoa, when I was in school, they told us the joint laxity is too great when they're mm-hmm. like four five, six months of age. How do you distinguish between a true Ortolani and just normal laxity? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you know, it's been shown that at, at 16 weeks, if you have a po- positive Ortolani, that is that is a dog that has hip dysplasia. Um, and the the reason for 16 weeks, the reason I bring that up is because there's a surgical procedure called a juvenile pubic symphysiodesis or JPS that can right, be performed right, right. when dogs are between 16 and 20 weeks of age. And what it is, it's actually pretty pretty technically easy procedure as long as you have cautery. You just, you, yep. you cauterize part of the, the pubic symphysis and what it does is it actually kind of effectively does the same thing that a, a triple pelvic osteotomy would do. And as the dog grows, their acetabulum, acetabuli grow 
over the femoral head. So it actually improves congruency of the hip joint, but it's only effective in those dogs between 16 and 20 weeks of age and honestly only with kind of mild to moderate laxity. And if people are are wanting to have a more objective understanding of of how severe their dog is, doing a a pen hip exam at that age is also, you know, would be a, a fine choice. Um, if somebody needs a really strong, like, especially if it's going to be a breeding dog or an agility dog, that would be the next step after, if you find a positive Ortolani. You know, I guess one thing, and I love that, you know, I think there's tons of ears perking up and saying like, wait, what, huh? You know, that's, (laughs) that's not what I know or that, you know, that seems so young. And I think sometimes, you know, pen hips and OFA and it's like, oh, we don't know. And we're not sure. and, And the certifications and the availability, um, I know that there's just a lot of of frustration around this or like um, maybe a misunderstanding around this. So I guess sometimes I to, to your point, you know, how much of this is GP? How much of this needs to go to specialty? I mean, like if we're seeing, you know, these 16 week old pups, we know they're going to be athletes in their adult life. You know, we think that there might be a little bit of laxity in the Ortolani. Like, do we need to be sending them to specialists? Do we should we be sending them to rehab? Um, is this manageable in GP? Just like kind of touch a little bit on that mm-hmm. if you would. Sure. You know, I think I think it all absolutely starts in the primary care that with the, with the general practitioner, because they're the only ones seeing these dogs at 16 weeks of age. So it has to start there and it, it starts with the screening. And I think in many cases it, it can stay with a general practitioner. It's, you know, if, if there's a positive Ortolani and, and a, a surgical procedure is not going to be done, all, all of the, the follow-up and all of the care and all of the discussion should be with the general practitioner. Um, you know, quite frankly, I, I'm a little bit unique as a surgeon that I do rehab and surgery. And so I'm not spending all of my time in the OR, but most of my surgical colleagues and friends, they don't want to be managing a case that's not surgical. So I would say, unless, unless there's going to be a conversation about surgery, then I really, this is why, honestly, why I started care is that I want to be able to empower general practitioners to be able to keep these cases and and be the advocate for the dog and provide the long-term care for dogs with OA. Now you bring up the, the idea of should they go to rehab, um, you know, physical rehabilitation for these cases absolutely can be helpful. But again, I think that there's a lot of tools that the general practitioner can can use and, and, and provide to the owner that may or may not require going into for, formal physical rehabilitation. It, and I, you know, um, we and we've had some conversations around that. I think rehab is getting really kind of, you know, sexy and exciting. There's a I think it's a really growing area right now. I know, you know, University of Tennessee and Dr. David Levine are doing some amazing things out there. And it's really fun to see. Uh, it's It's really enjoyable, I guess, for me as a technician to watch the creativeness that my colleagues um, on both sides come up with because, you know, you can really turn anything into some kind of rehabilitative tool, which I think mm-hmm. is a lot of fun. But <laughs> before we run out of time, I guess yep. I do kind of want to ask a little bit more about cats in the sense that right now your resources are all focused towards dogs, mm-hmm. right? But I think that we know that osteoarthritis in cats is is probably equally, if not more, underserved and addressed. And um, because you have this amazing library of resource that's like, I'm kind of like, are you going to do this for cats? Do we see this coming down the road? We need it. (laughs) Yes. Well, two things I'll say is um, almost everything that I do for dogs or recommend for dogs, I'm going to recommend for cats as well. Um, 
But more specifically, to your point, yes, um, I have asked my uh, my PhD mentor and, and just one of the most amazing people I've ever met, Dr. Sheila Robertson, um, all cat guru out there. She is going to be um, helping write some some content specifically to cats. And so we'll be looking for that later this year. Most importantly, will there be a resource to teach them to bow? Because that is what I want. <laughs> That's all I want. All right. <laughs> but see, this, this is what I, I did want to I did want to get into this because see, biomechanically, mm-hmm. cats are not dogs or people. And so <laughs> so like I, I don't see the cat on the BOSU ball, the balance balls mm-hmm. just yet. Um, and again, this is why the emphasis on prevention of obesity in cats, because most of this is modulated by inflammation, in, yep. at least in my opinion, in my evaluation of the evidence. Uh, so if you're one, if you want to know how to tackle osteoarthritis in cats, you start at the food bowl. You start by preventing obesity because the consequences there are direct. So, you know, again, Chris and I, I, I love the image of the, the cats and the underwater treadmills and all that stuff. But honestly, that's a, that's. I'm not going to say that's always appropriate. Oh, I totally agree. I absolutely agree. <laughs> you know, yep, don't want to get into that, but that yeah. was cinder block. We've all seen cinder blocks. Come that on. That was just a stunt. Yeah. Uh, but the reality, you know, again, biomechanically, they are different. The skeletal system of cat, arguably the most efficient of mammalian species on the planet. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, I really appreciate all that you're doing, uh, Kristen, because what your focus is on is on how do we broaden this conversation? And so you're bringing veterinarians, general practitioners, you're bringing veterinary technicians, you're bringing pet owners, these resources. And that makes you a very, very special person, in my opinion. So thank you. Well, thank so you. where do they go to find out more about the awesome stuff you are doing? <laughs> they can go to caninearthritis.org. So again, canine spelled out, caninearthritis.org. And veterinary professionals will just um, enter your email address and you're automatically then signed up. Um, and then do certainly want to encourage uh, to to dive a little bit further and, and sign up for the pro membership. It's $150 a year. That's where you get access to all of the videos that you can share with your clients, um, resources and tools. There's actually, you know, a calorie calculator that tells you how, you know, based on body condition score, how many calories the dog should eat, how many treats they get. Um, so lots and lots of resources there. Um, and, you know, I started this um, on my own, but as as care grows and, and the enthusiasm for the site grows, I'm really fortunate to have guest contributors um, and hoping that that you, Dr. Ernie, are going to help me out here um, pretty soon with, with some some content on obesity. So <laughs> I'm down. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a, a big project, but we're really passionate about it. And if you're on Facebook, you can find us at at canine arthritis. And we even have a veterinary professionals Facebook group. So we have a, a closed group where lots of great discussions about everything to do with canine arthritis management. Well, viewfinders, you've heard what we have to say. Now we want to hear from you. Let us know on social media what you're doing to raise the awareness of osteoarthritis with your pet patients and your pet parents. Uh, What do you think about Dr. Kristen Shaw's uh, care program? Go check it out. I think it'll be so worth your while. Uh, And what are you doing personally in your day-to-day practice to sort of make that little early diagnosis and recognition happen? That's right. And if you're not and you're not into it and it's not your thing, as I always say, and I'm always beating the drum, there is a technician or a support staff member in your practice who really wants to be involved with this get them this you know uh, pro membership let them learn the tools to be educating all of your clients empower them as your staff member and they will be educating your clients and it's going to elevate everyone in the practice until next time 
Bye. Bye. Thank you, guys. That's actually what I wanted to say and forgotten and remembered. That's why. Yeah, thank you guys so much.